Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello everyone, welcome to Stem Cells at Lunch Digested. We have Professor Francesca Sardega Tedesco with us today. So could we start by saying a little bit about the focus of your research? So um, my research is focused on, on muscle regeneration really and on uh, developing Uh, models to study muscle diseases and also um, treatments, uh, mostly experimental therapies for incurable muscle disorders of children. Uh, usually the key sort of tool that we use to do that are muscle stem cells. And so the main applications of your work? As I said, in a way, mostly to um, understand how these severe muscle conditions um, develop and evolve and uh, to find uh, treatments for those. those. The applications are really very much towards disease modeling and uh, gene and cell therapy for muscle conditions. And so you're also clinically trained. How do you reconcile and how do you organize your week between the two, the two things? <laughs> That's a good question, particularly in these days of pandemic. Um, I, yeah, I'm... Um, I'm an NIHR um, clinical lecturer in pediatric neurology for, on, on my clinical side of things. So I do my um, clinical work at Great Ormond Street Hospital where I'm completing my subspecialty uh, in, in pediatric neurology over there. And I divide my week roughly half, you know, 50-50, although in reality it's usually probably 100%, 100% uh, between clinical work and research work. Um, But although uh, this is challenging and demanding, it's also very rewarding because it makes you understand the relevance of your work because you see the need in patients on a daily, uh, weekly basis and it gives you the right motivation to do so. And hopefully one day will also give me the opportunity to bring some of our own uh, discoveries into clinical trials. And uh, so do you feel at the moment, do you bring more from the bench to the bedside or from the bedside to the bench? It's probably at the moment uh, much more from the bedside to the bench, although I've been uh, lucky enough during my PhD and postdoc years also to, to do the opposite in, in, first in, human, in the first in human clinical trial back then. Uh, my, my own research program right now is, is more relying on for example, patient samples to develop our um, muscle models to study muscular dystrophies. But we hope that those models will then identify some particular treatments that we can uh, apply to those very same patients, and then we can bring them back into the uh, clinic. What are the biggest challenges facing the field in general at the moment? Wow. Um, I think there are a number of challenges, really, depending on How you know how do you like and you know, how would you like to approach them? Um, in my specific areas, um, probably one of the key challenges, particularly when uh, speaking about uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and using them to make muscle for either gene and cell therapies or for disease models, the challenges are um, having, for example, uh, models that give you a possibility to have a mature piece of muscle developed from those. Uh, cells in in vitro. This is not always possible, but sometimes it's not even necessary. And uh, you know how does the famous uh, quote say? All models are wrong, but some of them are useful. I think it's pretty real in our case, and and we found it being particularly useful. 
despite the limitations of these models that sometimes we have to face. So maturation is one of those, for example. Uh, in the case of gene and cell therapy as well, the biggest challenges for muscle are the fact that A, muscle is a very abundant tissue, so we've got kilos and kilos of muscles. So when you are thinking about a, an advanced medicinal product, such as you know, cell therapy, and you want to target you know, all those kilos of muscles, that is quite challenging. So you need to be able to you know, handle a cell population in the lab, which is potentially uh, usable to target multiple muscles at the same time. Uh, but on the other hand, you want to also to create a niche for those cells that are coming in. So the previous scar and the disease, the old disease tissue is also a big challenge. At variance with other tissues, for example, just thinking about the hematopoietic system where it's slightly easier to uh, to make space and get rid of the old disease cells to um, to make space for the new uh, transplant, for example. Well, you can't really do the same in post-mitotic tissues like muscle, and that is a big, uh, big challenge. Um, so having cells that can migrate properly to the right side is, is something that we're also working on. On the other hand, there are promising advances on, on gene therapies, which uh, for the sort of short term are, um, are suggesting that we can sort of target a large number of, mus number of muscles uh, regardless of uh, the, the, the abundance by using gene therapy vectors directly in vivo rather than using the uh, cells and then transplanting those cells. However, we really would like to sort of go in that direction too one day, so to, can, to restore the stem cell pool as well. And uh, staying on the cell therapy side, is uh, the field approaching this more thinking about autologous or allogeneic? That's a million dollar question, actually, because um, I think the, the field is shifting from one to the other regularly. Um, I personally have been always focused, I've been always focusing on trying to do that in an autologous fashion. Um, because I sort of think that that could be more definitive as a solution. Uh, and to some extent, if you look at some of the most successful, um, you know, ex vivo gene therapy uh, trials or gene and cell therapy approaches, usually they are few, but they're always uh, often uh, autologous. However, that is a major challenge in terms of then scaling up your treatment and you know financial cost and and health economics and we're all aware of that um but um uh, from uh, as a doctor I'm, I'm paying much more attention to the clinical outcome than to the health economics for now and i believe that maybe the autologous approach might still be valid and possibly more promising on on, on the long run but it's definitely more complex thank you so what do you enjoy most about your work more recently Again, it's quite tough to to find enjoyment in these uh, gloomy times. But uh, what I think is the most rewarding thing from the research and, and, and science side of my job is definitely those very rare but uh, exciting eureka moments where you when you have that feeling that you are the first one to notice something that wasn't noticed in in, in, in an experiment before or where you realize that if it's something much more related on technology development, that whatever, you know, what you were thinking to develop and what you were imagining in your dreams is probably not impossible and it can be made. On the other hand, that has always to be, you know, needs to be balanced with the, the big frustrations of our job, 
and and from the clinical side of things, I think the most rewarding things is always thing is always realizing that you occasionally are making a difference for some patients, even if it's one or two or three in a in a month or in a year. Uh, it, it makes your day usually. And when when you're not in uh, in the lab or visiting patients, uh, what do you enjoy doing? I remember ages ago a conversation about grocery shopping in, in Grayson Road. And <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I I used to have a few hobbies when I was young and fit, but now really finding some spare time for those things is becoming more and more difficult. But uh, I love uh, I'm I'm a record collector and I love listening to. Uh, obscure soul and funk from the 70s usually in uh, rare grooves and and finding those uh, records around the world uh, but again I think I'm getting less and less time to do so I, I love to cycle um, and more probably more than cycling which I something that quite like I, I do like to build my own bicycles and it's something I used to do much more again in the past, particularly when I was in Milan. Um, and here is much more challenging in London because if you don't have a decent garden, you don't even have the space to do that. And you know, if you live in central London, having a decent garden is not something straightforward. Actually, the, the, now that you're mentioning we're all getting old, uh, um, and you were one of our first uh, uh, guests at uh, Stencil at Lunch, we, we remembered it before. What do you think has changed in the last few years, uh, just not just in your research, but like more in general, in terms of the environment uh, uh, young PhDs and research associates are experiencing these days? I mean, it's a good question. I think uh, particularly over the last year, as you said, things have changed dramatically. And, uh, and I think it's tougher than before for a young PhD student or a postdoc trying to you know, figure out the career plans to, you know, to to find the mo- the right motivation in, the, in this time. Um, to some extent, communication between scientists has probably improved on the, you know, on the virtual side of things. Possibly to a pathological level, looking at the amount of Zoom meetings and virtual meetings that we all have, you know we all have on a daily basis, but that could probably be advantageous for um, uh, a younger scientist who then has you know, more access to uh, top-notch conferences, for example, uh, which would have been very difficult to attend to uh, in the past. You, know, you couldn't really go to uh, four or five uh, major uh, stem cell conferences in one year. Uh, you know, will, your, your lab will be bankrupt probably if everyone will do the same. And now they have that sort of opportunity if you're really proactive you can you know if anything there is too much choice in terms of how many virtual seminar series or virtual conferences you can attend but on the other hand the real life uh, interaction is dropped dramatically and i think often particularly in the case of myself i'm thinking about when i was a phd student or a postdoc most uh, not most, a good amount of problems and troubleshooting in the lab was getting sorted in the corridors, you know, by bumping into a colleague and having a chat over a coffee and discussing that problem, and they will come up with a solution. Um, so it, it's a difficult balance. So I think that aspect has changed, but hopefully it's going to go back to to normal. But on the plus side, at least in the last few years, as you know, we've been locally, at least here in London, we've been able to set the stage for 
you know, things to come like the London Stem Cell Network, which is nicely integrated with the with the virtual platforms uh, lately, and I think has grown uh, has grown dramatically from from the very beginning. So, looking at the you know the latest uh, symposium, and it was it was a big success, and even the one before the the last one. So, um, I mean, I don't really have a definitive answer on that, but uh, you know, I think if we can take a lesson, maybe when life is going to go back to normal, we should probably try to balance our real-life interactions with a more straightforward and, and regular virtual, me- you know, straightforward virtual meetings, which could probably make the life of younger scientists easier, particularly for labs that don't have the resources to attend international conferences on a, on a regular basis. Thank you. And uh, last question, what do you hope to achieve in the next uh, 10 years of your research? In 10 years? Wow. Um, I don't know. It's always easy to find a pre-packed answer for these sort of questions. But I guess in real life, you know, what I'm trying to achieve is a good balance between, you know, clinical work and uh, making sure that I can remain a good doctor despite the scientific pressure and commitments. Uh, Hopefully trying to make a difference for my patients. Uh, and doing so by ideally bringing into clinical trials uh, some of our work, uh, not necessarily a product uh, derived automatically, you know, uh, derived by us, but also something that could potentially be validated using our platforms, something that, you know, without our scientific contribution would have not reached uh, clinical approval, for example. That will make me happy from that side and most importantly try to do this keeping a decent work-life balance um, will be uh, a priority especially i think nowadays with these events that we are you know all exposed to with the pandemic i think the importance of of work-life balance is more uh, relevant than than before. Just a, a quick suggestion to your younger self or to somebody who is for example getting a bit stuck between choosing clinical work or research work? Do you have a, a suggestion that would help them? I, I do have a very simple, obvious suggestion, which is don't give up, really, because uh, unfortunately, uh, the system is not very, it's not optimized for people who want to do both things. Uh, there are lots of opportunities, lots of options, but uh, they, they're not automatic and they're not going to be coming looking for you. You've got to be proactive and you know, persistent and just don't give up. If, if you feel that this is what you want to do, um, just try to pursue it because it's, it's possible. You just have to be patient and then, uh, and then you'll see that things are going to be getting easier and easier. But in the beginning, it's going to be tough, but also rewarding because you really feel that you are able to some extent, at least to understand both languages. And, and if you understand both languages, you can be a good translator. And if you're a good translator, you could do good translational medicine. I like this. I like this. Thank you so much, Sadeya, for being with us. Thank you, Davide. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you.